Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Tonight's episode deals with the storylines of the episode related to Laura Palmer. We're going to look at this scene by scene. So looking at a particular storyline and the scenes that fall within it. First up is the murder. At this point, we can fold the cocaine in Twin Peaks, the police bookhouse boys investigation, completely into this plot because their hunt for Jacques as a part of this drug sting and as a suspect in Laura's murder totally coincide by this point. So first up, we have Doc and uh, Harry researching Minas in the uh, conference room as, as Cooper walks in. I think Hawk's there too. And they're all just going through all that evidence we just discussed. The connections with the cabin and the pictures of Waldo and Cooper sets up the tape recorder and uh, they propose that the Bookhouse boys go to One-Eyed Jack. So all that stuff is, is jammed into this, uh, I think, third scene in the episode. It's funny, when Cooper's walking in, um, there's a man and a woman in the waiting area behind him. And it's it's interesting because lately, I think particularly, I think the pilot, maybe episode one, there's a little more going on in the background. There's like more cops around and stuff like that. But lately, we've just been totally focused on, you know, these particular investigations going on and uh, the people we know at that department. I don't think we've seen any extra cops hanging around, for one thing. But here we have a couple people dealing with it. You know, it's a reminder, oh yeah, there's more going on in the community, but despite what we're focused on. I like how the camera follows Cooper into the room. It's actually kind of a transition from one scene into another because he's talking to Lucy out there, and then it just kind of glides along, goes right into the uh, conference room. Nice use of space there, or establishing the space, I guess. And as as he walks in, Doc Hayward is reading about the minor bird. So I'll, I'll repeat that here since he's, he, we can get a little context and kind of focus on it for a moment. He says, Gracula religiosa, commonly known as the hill mina, native to Southeast Asia, Indonesia, feeds on fruit mainly, some invertebrates. Its ability to mimic the human voice is amazing. So, of course, the reason they want a minor bird or a parrot, as was mentioned a couple episodes ago, as the bird that bit Laura, is uh, clearly so that they can have something that can be like a vocal witness, like an animal that can actually be a witness. It's a very clever, kind of funny idea when you think about it. Cool little twist. And then we also have Cooper saying he doesn't like birds. So uh, a little more of a glimpse into Cooper's quirks and background who knows why and we're almost better off not knowing it's just kind of a funny little detail i actually really love cooper's mellow vibe in this episode this is one of my favorite episodes for him from the beginning where he's talking to audrey in this scene is he's kind of laid back and just his whole manner of delivery is very smooth like i i just think it nails it nails it in this episode really good stuff He's the one who suggests this would be a good job for the Bookhouse Boys, so not only is he okay with this vigilante group existing in uh, Twin Peaks, he's actually, like, encouraging them, which is kind of funny as an FBI agent, uh, or, I guess, funny in this context. The next scene to deal with the murder is uh, Leo standing outside his house, watching Shelley and Bobby getting ready to shoot them, and it turns into part of the murder subplot, or the murder plot, because he also has a police radio on, and he overhears Lucy discussing Waldo on the radio, saying, oh, it's a witness bird, it saw a crime, can help us, and he's going, uh-oh, something clicks, puts his gun away, he's willing to not uh, shoot Bobby. It's kind of funny, why doesn't he just go in his house and shoot them? It's like his own, I don't know. He's like waiting for them to come outside, I guess it's an easier getaway or something. Not Not sure what his thought process is on that, but it's interesting to consider by speaking about Waldo openly over the phone 
and uh, you know allowing anybody with a ham radio or police or whatever to pick it up uh lucy kills waldo but she saves bobby bobby would probably be dead if she didn't uh if she wasn't out there putting waldo out there for leo to come get the next scene dealing with the murder is cooper harry and ed preparing for their trip to one-eyed jacks they're gathered at the great northern bar not totally sure why they're there it's a it's a cool location for them to be at um but it only just occurred to me now like what are they why are they prepping there um rather than at the sheriff's station kind of funny maybe they feel like they shouldn't meet ed at no because he's at the sheriff's station later i was gonna say because he's because it's a bookhouse boys thing i don't know I, I like it though it's good and of course it allows audrey to, to kind of come in at the end of the scene as well so in this scene, uh, Cooper asks Ed, you like to gamble, Ed? And he pulls out $10,000 of the Bureau's money, as he puts it. Says he always brings in a 10 to 15% return on the money. So he can give them some money that they might be they might end up losing because he knows he'll cover their losses, basically, and asks how much they want, and Ed's all excited. So another little detail. Reminds me, uh, th- this whole enthusiasm for going off to gamble and just the giddiness that, the, that these men have as they get ready to just throw away their money reminds me of the las vegas episode of uh, hill street blues season five which is a frost teleplay Uh, i just checked it to make sure because he was in charge during that season but he also wrote some of the scripts he wrote it along with jeffrey lewis david milch will be of course a familiar name to many tv fans and uh, jacob epstein Uh, the story was by lewis and milch and the series creator stephen bochco so frost i guess didn't come up with the sort of the concept but he uh he he wrote a lot of the details of it. So that's an episode where all these cops go to Vegas. Uh, they kind of sneak away and they're like all excited. And one of them goes way overboard and loses a lot of the other guy's money, actually takes some from him. And it's just like a great character episode. One of them accidentally wins a bunch of money, which is very interesting. Um, but we'll talk about that at a later point. So yeah, that's that's a cool little connection. I just watched that episode a few weeks ago. So seeing this you know, Twin Peaks goes to a casino was, was a nice uh, reminder. It's funny, too. Ed and Coop get along great now. Like, they, they're, you know, everybody warms up to Coop eventually. Because remember, a few episodes ago, Ed was kind of weary of him. So I don't know if we should bring him on board. And then even as they were talking about uh, going to, you know, g- about uh, the Bookhouse Boys, Ed was just kind of still like, well, you know, it's everybody's problem if kids are doing drugs. Like he just was a little bit still standoffish to Cooper. But now, no, you know, they're they're on board. They're buddies, <laughs> real buddies. And of course, their big bonding it will be when they are inside the casino together. Some great moments there. And for now, uh, Harry says that they've got a Cadillac for cover. They're going to be high rollers from the big city. And Cooper gets all excited. He says, oral surgeons, Harry, big spenders, vacationing among the furs. Later, we see Hawk wiring Cooper. Uh, Ed puts on this goofy wig and a mustache as his disguise. Cooper's got like a tuxedo and these, uh, and, you know, glasses. That's his like Clark Kent disguise. Pretty funny, you know, this idea of them going undercover there. Like nobody knows that he's the FBI agent that just showed up in town. I mean, I get it's across the border in Canada, but... I don't know if a border means that much when they're only a few miles away. We have Waldo uh, saying Laura in the room, and that we see the tape recorder start to turn on, and then boom, he's shot. Blood everywhere, blood on the donuts, iconic image of Twin Peaks. And uh, Cooper, Harry, Ed, Andy, and Lucy all race into the 
the room, the conference room where Waldo's birdcage was suspended over the table and they're looking and they're all kind of broken hearted, especially Lucy. Oh, poor Waldo, you know, and Andy's comforting her. And so Cooper turns on the tape, rewinds it, listens, and they hear you're hurting me. And uh, Leo, no, as we talked about in the in the uh, clues that we get this episode. Interesting point to note. Guess who does Waldo's voice? It's Cheryl Lee. She uh, confirmed this in an interview of the time that, among other things, you know, she's like, well, I was wrapped up and dipped in blue and put in plastic for the corpse. And now I'm playing my cousin, disguising myself, my cousin disguising myself as me. And uh, also I did the voice of Waldo the Bird. And she says she was suspended from a uh, intersection, you know, 40 feet in the air in a Wizard of Oz outfit, which does not happen in Twin Peaks. That's that's in Wild at Heart, if you want to check that movie out. Lynch had her doing a lot of interesting stuff. Later, we have Cooper and Ed at One-Eyed Jacks. They uh, flirt with Blackie. (laughs) Great scene. Hawk listens in. Love the exchanges here. So, first of all, they've dubbed themselves Barney and Fred. Another little TV reference there you could probably figure out from the Flintstones. And uh, I I love Blackie's whole demeanor in this scene. Like, she's sort of savvy. She's going along with it. But she's not stupid. She's got some idea maybe something's going on. And uh, she says to Ed at one point, she, you know, she's having, she's, she's in it with Cooper. She's, she's on board with him, but she kind of looks at this guy with this obvious fake thing and standing there very stiffly. And she says, you look like a cop. And Coop very smoothly just grabs her hand and says, I'm the cop. Reverse psychology or whatever you want to call it there. And then they go back and forth because Ed accidentally says he's a mechanic and then he corrects himself. Oh, no, I'm an oral, oral surgeon. And so we get this ridiculous quintessential Harley Payton dialogue. Well, I got a Chevy parked out back with a serious root canal problem. You want to take a look? And Ed says, I was hoping you might need a little gum work because I'd sure like to get a look under your hood. It's just so absurd. And then the, my favorite part of the exchange, she says, Fred's okay. And Cooper just grinning. Fred's a prince. He's so damn good in this episode. I love it. And incidentally, you know, she compares him to Cary Grant. He did play Cary Grant in the film Touch of Pink in 2004. It's a film about a closeted gay man in London who deals with a crisis by speaking with an imaginary spirit of Cary Grant. So we got Cooper, or we got um, Kyle MacLachlan as Cary Grant, and we've got uh, Sherilyn Finn uh, all over this episode. She, as, as She's Audrey's actress, of course. She played Elizabeth Taylor in a TV movie a few years later called Liz, The Elizabeth Taylor Story, 1995. So we have two of the stars of this episode in particular who went on to play great Hollywood movie stars in the future. This scene was shot by uh, Caleb Deschanel at the same time that David Lynch was shooting episode two and Frost was shooting episode seven. Uh, they kind of overlapped, I think, even to the point of usually, you know, they would spend a week on one episode, move on to the next episode, move on to the next. But they kind of combined these shooting days because this was not a set built on the soundstage. This was an actual location somewhere in California, uh, L.A. area where they had limited access. So they wanted to get everything in. So all three directors went there and shot their scenes. Mark Frost, of course, is shooting the next episode, which I don't think it's any spoiler to say there will be scenes at One-Eyed Jacks in the next episode. I find it kind of interesting to watch it from that aspect picturing the directors kind of coming in okay now it's your turn and i've always sort of wondered how that goes sometimes there's like a shot occasionally that's from one director's episode used in another like lynch using the flashbacks when they're throwing the 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 rocks at the bottles but uh you know i would imagine even for convenience sake they have to keep the episodes distinct even when they're shooting 
two directors shooting at the exact same location. So they've got to sort of arrange that. It's an interesting producing challenge. Finally, the last scene involving the murder at any in any way, because they are there to check out one of the suspects in the murder, is Cooper and Ed playing blackjack. And then Ed leaves as uh, Jacques becomes the dealer. He kind of gives his little, I think he gives a little bookhouse boy's motion to let Cooper know, okay, Jacques's coming in. For the Palmer family subplot, as I kind of dubbed it last week, Leland's crack up. Again, no Sarah, just Leland this episode. Not too much of him. But we get a shot of him sitting on the couch in their living room, just totally in shadow. All the lights were off. He's staring like at the wall. Just It's like all of his manic episodes in the previous episode have just uh, drained him now. And he's just left there kind of this husk but maddie walks past kind of sneaking out and he turns very slowly and looks and it's this weird kind of eerie shot we're wondering like how far has leland cracked at this point i think you know and that's it that that's all we get from this episode for the relationship to bobby subplot we have uh, bobby's little line he says i'm gonna deal with leo i'm gonna deal with james Bobby's going to take care of everything. Loves to refer to himself in the third person. So we don't get much of him talking about his relationship with Laura at this point. You know, he's more focused on Shelly and everything going on with her, but he's still fixated on getting revenge with James, on James, which obviously comes out of his unresolved feelings uh, from, you know, his dead girlfriend, basically. Later on, Bobby is in the park watching as Donna and James ride off on James's motorcycle. Uh, he, don't think he necessarily knows what the hell they're doing or is much interested, uh, but he just really wants to uh, to plant something on James's bike. Although I should note him as he's watching Maddie dressed as Lara, he does seem detained for a moment. Like, what the hell is going on here? Later, we see him in Jacoby's parking lot as Don and James run up the stairs to go in his apartment. He walks out, slips a package into James's bike. We don't see what's in the package. Could be any number of things, and he says, say goodbye, James. For the relationship to James subplot, we have Maddie, Donna, and James listening to Laura's tape, uh, the tape that she recorded for Jacoby a couple days before she died, and he seems kind of troubled by it. He rushes to shut it off even before she seems finished talking. She's talking about how easy it is to make men attracted to her. And he's sort of focused on the implications of this, who killed her, etc., but you can tell that there's a little bit of discomfort there. Uh, you know, as she, as she kind of talks that way. And later on, when Maddie arrives at their rendezvous, they all have a plan to, you know, as as mentioned before, disguise her as Laura, have her call Jacoby, convince her Laura's alive, convince him Laura's alive. And so he's the one who came up with this plan, which is an interesting thing to note. So he has no real reason to be surprised, but nonetheless, he has this moment of kind of shock as Maddie walks up as Laura. It's like she's reincarnated. And uh, this is a huge nod, I think, to Vertigo, this film, where there's a detective who's in love with someone who finds a lookalike years later, and he uh, kind of forces her to dress up as that person. Very clear reference to Vertigo. And it's worth noting, Maddie's name is itself a reference to Vertigo. Madeline is the name of one of the characters, and Ferguson is the last name of the detective. So... Not accidental at all. We really don't have anything distinct for the relationship to Donna's subplot. She's just kind of blurred in with James and Maddie and their efforts. Um, you know, she's notices the way that James kind of looks at Maddie. Uh, she has a moment where he's James is staring at her stunned, and she looks between the two of them and is like, okay, take this tape, let's do our work. Uh, they're all using this as a way, I think, to distract themselves from their 
whatever other purposes they have to distract themselves from their lingering, unresolved issues with Laura. For the therapy subplot, that's where most of this energy goes. So this has become huge. In the pilot episode, there was one scene with Jacoby almost incidentally running into the detective, like, hey, Laura saw me, I was her therapist. Now there's like a whole, basically a third of the investigation devoted to Laura's friends trying to figure out what was up with her and Jacoby. So that's kind of blown up, really. We have uh, the scene where they're listening to the tape, and uh, in that tape, you know, I've already discussed what Laura says in there for the most part, uh, because it was all part of the evidence, you know, in their in their investigation. But they see the empty tape case. They know that Laura had, Laura must have given them a tape the night she died. There's a long horizontal tracking shot goes from they're all off screen, and we hear the tape start, and we pan across, or no, not pan, we track across like a dolly shot. It's very nice movement. One of the more notable moves that uh, Deschanel makes in this in this episode. The voice of Laura on the tape is very interesting. How how Shirley plays it. It's like very seductive at times, but also gets kind of emotional. She really manages to capture the side of Laura that is playing and toying with people, but also has like a real authenticity to her pain that she's trying to express even through this kind of mask. Um, which is worth noting and considering how much of this is Jacoby really coaxing these things from her, because she certainly suggests that he's got this kind of skeezy interest in her, and, uh, and how much of it is actually just her using that as almost a defense mechanism. You know, I think if you asked him, he would say, oh, it was a defense mechanism. Uh, you know, we therapists are used to that. But then other parts of his performance have made us wonder... Mm, you know, maybe you were kind of leading her in that direction a little bit. She says at one point, it's easier talking to the recorder. I guess I feel I can say anything, which is a really interesting observation there. You know, again, this kind of self-doubt, this this pain that she's in. And she says, why is it so easy to make men like me? And I don't even have to try very hard. Maybe if it was harder. And that's where James cuts it off. But it's it's worth noting there that there's a sense that she doesn't really want men to be this attracted to her as they are. On a much more trivial note, one thing I thought about in this scene is they hold out the shoebox, and I thought of it in the previous episode as well. I kind of excused it. Like, well, she took all the tapes, she put them in a shoebox. But no, it's implied that, like, they're looking through these tapes in the shoebox for the first time. How could a whole shoebox fit in a bedpost? That doesn't make sense to me. She says there's a there's a spot in her bedpost where she hid this, you know, the, these tapes, but... I don't know if that's an oversight or I'm just not understanding something there. Later, we have the scene where Maddie's sneaking out, getting ready to set up Jacoby. And then she arrives at the gazebo with the blonde wig on. It looks very much like a wig, uh, which is interesting because I think by this point, Shirley was already wearing a wig, um, at least as Laura. No, that might have come later. Never mind. (laughs) Ignore that part. But the Laura theme is playing as Maddie walks out of the shadow This is an imitation, but it's by the person who played the part in the first place, which is another great kind of twist and callback to Vertigo because they have the same actress playing these ostensibly different characters, you know. But here we have Cheryl Lee playing somebody, playing the character that she played before she played this character. And she's talked in interviews about how surreal this was, and particularly being at her own funeral in the previous episode. She's had such a fascinating relationship with that character. Maddie goes to a phone booth in this park, and she calls Jacoby, impersonates Laura, even uh, impersonates her voice, which we we would note at this point. Laura has sort of a sing-songy little 
bit of a voice that uh, Maddie does not. She kind of switches back into her own voice as she hangs up. And I should have mentioned, you know, we have we showed Jacoby in his apartment talking on the other end of the line. You're not Laura, and uh, they have a trick to plan him. But I should have mentioned that Jacoby. Uh, is wearing these red and blue glasses, which are so iconic for that character. That was introduced several episodes ago, and I forgot to bring it up then, so I'll I'll bring it up now. It's like, I I think I called them 3D glasses when I first watched it, but they're not exactly. They're like real glasses with lenses, and uh, there's some interesting sort of fan theories. And then at, at one point, Mark Frost wrote a book where he talked a little bit about what he thought that meant but uh we'll we'll mention that some other time so they tell jacoby look outside your door he goes out opens the door is looking around and he sees this envelope it's got a videotape inside he puts it in and sure enough there appears to be laura and she's pointing at the newspaper and said it's it's uh interestingly called the valley record even though there's this sort of um, association with twin peaks of a, of a newspaper called the twin peaks gazette it's in a lot of sort of spin-off material and stuff. In this, it's called the Valley Record, which maybe is a real newspaper. I don't know. And she's pointing at the headline, at the at the dateline to show him, hey, this is today. I'm real. I'm here. And he's like, oh, wow. And she says, what, what do you want me to do? And they, they tell him to meet him at uh, Sparkwood in 21. But of course, he rewinds the tape and sees, no, they're actually at this other place. And he decides to go there instead. I love the colors in Jacoby's apartment. It's a very rare use of blue. Uh, supposedly, uh, Caleb Deschanel asked Lynch for like a, or asked somebody. He said, "I want to get a blue suitcase." And they're like, "Oh no, no, no! David Lynch is a prohibition on on blue on Twin Peaks. Only red and green shades." But there's a lot of blue in this episode, actually. And Jacoby's house is like a haven for blue. His his apartment or whatever. I, I love it. It looks so cool. Uh, some of the lighting also plays in this motif as well. There's there's like really gorgeous lighting at the phone booth. I don't know. There's just something about this episode. Um, a few years ago, I was sort of into this other other David Lynch material and almost using kind of Twin Peaks as an excuse just to explore the David Lynch material. But it was this episode, and particularly this scene and that shot of like Maddie impersonating Laura at the phone. But that was kind of what started to really pull me in or back into like this world of the show as its own thing that existed, uh, like a riff on Lynch from a distance, which, which I love. So Jacoby sees the gazebo, he flees his apartment, and John and James sneak in. And the outside of his apartment is interesting because it's not so rustic. There's kind of trash around. There's a chain-lick fence, big parking lot. almost feels more urban. Of course, there are plenty of spaces like this in small towns, but uh, I love that little mix. Reminds me a little bit of Blue Velvet, where they have this urban feel inside the small town. There's nothing for the addiction or the drug dealing stories this episode. Uh, nothing with Laura's cocaine use. With Laura and Leo, this overlaps entirely with the Waldo part of the murder plot because their paths cross. But it is worth considering in isolation because Leo wants to cover up any connection he has to Laura, not just what happened that night. So this isn't, in other words, what I'm saying is. The fact that Leo shoots the bird, I think, is significant beyond the murder stuff because he's also shown before that he doesn't want anybody knowing he had anything to do with Laura, even if it's like a casual association. So there's a lot going on there. There's nothing for the charity story, nothing for Flesh World. Um, I think I, I was referring to it before as the sort of the sex work aspect of Laura's story, but considering that now One-Eyed Jax is almost its own thing, I, I think we can just focus on flesh world but nothing here to focus on anyways for the laura stories that were introduced in episode one we get nothing about her spirituality but a whole lot about her employment i think the therapy the employment 
and the crime scene stuff and the dream that, that the FBI is investigating, those are like the three strands of the mystery at this point. The employment is focused around Horn's department store where we know she worked, but it's also starting to extend into One-Eyed Jack's where she may have worked. First off, we see Audrey selling perfume at the counter, and uh, she overhears Emery Battis, her boss, calling Jenny, one of her co-workers, into his office as let's meet there. And that's what her focus is. This woman is sort of nagging at her and have a funny exchange which says, Audrey says, it smells like a forest. And the woman is pressing her. I want this type of, I want a fruity smell. She says, it's a perfume. Why don't you wear it around your neck? It can be a perfume and a fashion accessory. Two statements for the price of one. I just love her like flippancy. She is not having this job. Uh, Jenny, by the way, the girl, the associate that she's working with, she's the girl who's dancing topless next to Mr. Reindeer as he sits on the toilet in Lynch's film Wild at Heart. So another Wild at Heart connection to season one. Audrey races back to Emery's office before anyone else can get there, and she tells the stockroom boy uh, that there was an accident outside. So he races off, and she hides in Emery's closet. She's looking on his desk, hears him come in, hides in the closet, uh, memorably smoking a cigarette. And she spies on them as they talk. So Emery is telling Jenny all about One-Eyed Jacks. We mentioned that before in the in the uh, clues to Laura's mystery. And he gives Jenny a unicorn, a little glass unicorn, tells her it's an ancient symbol of purity, tamed only by the young at heart. And she kind of pretends to be impressed. And later her and Audrey have a funny exchange about it. Uh, the stock room is interesting. It has a lot of boots and boxes that say Sage Collection. I've always noticed there's like, especially once they move to L.A. to shoot, there's this sort of Western feel, Twin Peaks. like, And I think it works because especially, I mean, in this case it's a set, but especially when they're doing location work, what are they going to run with that ties? Like L.A. is way far south. It's got palm trees. Washington's up north. It's foggy. It's cooler. You know, they're kind of very different landscapes. But they both kind of have that Western culture a little bit. So I sometimes feel like they heighten that on the series so that they, you know, like I think of like the one-stop shop and the the Lidecker's Vet Clinic. It has that kind of rustic Western feel in the previous episode. So I don't know. The boots made me think of that. I love the yellow lamp on Emery's desk, the flowers that are in the store. There's great colors in this episode. And I think actually there may be another Vertigo shout-out as Audrey watches Emery walk away and he's sort of, approaching this flower stand and rustling with the flowers there's a shot similar to that in vertigo where james stewart is watching kim novak in like a greenhouse walking around and uh, jenny's response to all of this is interesting she's just sort of like yeah cool i'll go there hey as long as they're wealthy whatever there it's this whole storyline the one-eyed jacks kind of uh to pipeline from the perfume counter it feels like the female version of the pinocchio fable it's trafficking as a kind of fairy tale trap. So Audrey later, she, the, the one other thing, of course, is that Emery mentions that Black Rose runs the One-Eyed one -eyed Jacks, here's her number, and she can't see the number from the closet. So later she fools Jenny into giving it to her, makes it sound like, oh, hey, I'm one of those girls, you know. She uses all the information she overheard them talking about and kind of jokes, and she also snatches that unicorn from the table because Jenny left it behind. Says, "Oh, look, Emery gave me one of these. Did he give you one of these too?" Oh, yeah, that's funny. Oh, I forgot Blackie's number. What is it? Great, great move on her part. Then she makes a phone call. We don't know at the time who it is, but we will find out later uh, when she's at the Great Northern. Actually, so she walks out literally just seconds after Cooper's departed, and looks around, can't see him. So she grabs a phone from the desk and calls his room can't get him and says tell him audrey called again yes it's still urgent i don't know if it's his room or the sheriff's station 
maybe the station. Later on, she's looking for Cooper again, it seems. Can't find him. And she slips a note under his door. And she sees an Asian man checking in and kind of nods to her. I love the shot of her saddle shoes as she drops off the letter. And we have to wonder, of course, who is this mysterious stranger? It's one of those cool Twin Peaks moments. Is it a non sequitur? Is it setting up something else? You know, it's all it's all a mystery. We don't know. Then she goes for an interview with uh, Blackie at One-Eyed Jacks. This is a great scene. Shows up in her little black dress and tries to look sort of brave and tough. But, you know, there's this great oscillating back and forth in this episode between Audrey, sort of the tough cookie, and Audrey, the soft kind of vulnerable kid who's in over her head. And this scene combines both of those. She's trying to act all confident, but we're seeing her as kind of weak again. And uh, Blackie just is able to call him out right away. Uh, call her out. She, she gives her a resume that says she worked at Big Amos's uh, uh, ranch. And uh, Blackie says, oh, Big Big Amos, yeah. Or no, she, it says uh, it says the name of the ranch, the Lost Dude Ranch or something like Lost Dude Corral, I don't know. And Blackie says, oh, does Big Amos still work there? And Audrey goes, oh, yeah, bigger and better than ever. And she says, yeah, Big Amos is my dog. Nice try. And another tip-off is that Audrey uses Hester Prynne, the protagonist of the Scarlet Letter, as her, as her uh, pseudonym doesn't work but then well, how's she gonna prove you know why shouldn't i airmail your your ass back to civilization or whatever the uh, network approved version of that line is and audrey looks down she sees the cherry uh sticking out of the drink and uh infamous scene proceeds and that's all that blackie needs to see and she hires her for the one-armed man storyline there's this is the second episode of nothing uh for the mystery man storyline nothing clearly related to the mystery man, but we see somebody watching Bobby. And then when Bobby leaves, they're still watching Maddie. Uh, this, you know, whenever we see some mysterious figure, like for example, that, that masked figure in the woods in episode two, it always feels like this could be the mystery man. There's kind of almost an implication that they are. Now, of course, there was also the suggestion the mystery man was just Leo because Jacoby mentioned she was talking about a guy with a Corvette. Not entirely clear. For the Laura and Ben storyline, this is the third episode of Nothing. Is Ben is dealing with the Ghostwood Mill stuff, and Audrey's kind of off pursuing all this other stuff. We're not getting much of, of whatever the connection between those two is. For the Laura stories introduced uh, in episode four, we have the connection to Maddie. Maddie uh, impersonates Laura and is watched by someone, so this overlaps entirely with the other plots, but still worth mentioning in its own right because we've talked about how that impacts James, how it impacts Donna, what it has to do with the therapy, but how does this feel for Maddie herself? Like, you know, we haven't gotten much of a glimpse into her character. She just kind of obediently goes along and does what other people want. But what does she think about all this? Like coming to this town and suddenly having to play her cousin. And Cheryl Lee's performance is so good because it gives us little hints of this. Like I love her response when she hangs up the phone after getting Jacoby on board. Like there's just this uncertainty there. Like what was I just doing? Who was I playing? Who was this other person that I embodied for a moment, you know? Uh, another, uh, and I don't think there were any storylines introduced in the previous episode or this one, any Laura storylines other than those mentioned. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can become a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. Tomorrow we continue with the scene by scene uh, approach, but this time uh, organized by the subplots, the non Laura storylines of the episode. 